The Modern Pain Podcast is a proud member of the PT Podcast Network. Make sure you check out ptpodcastnetwork.com for other awesome PT-related podcasts. This is the Modern Pain Podcast with Mark Cargilla. How's it going and welcome back to another episode of the Modern Pain Podcast. This week, I wanted to kind of change it up a little bit. I feel like we've been interviewing some very smart people and getting some great information from some of the experts we've had on the podcast. But I wanted to come on by myself this week and kind of talk about some things that felt like were helpful to some of the people I've been interacting with as of late. And it's going to be based on this post. I guess they're not tweets anymore because X has kind of changed things up a little bit. But something I posted on X uh, just about my journey and some of the struggles I had and some of the kind of aha moments I had along the way in my journey that really were helpful for me to kind of really feel like I belong, that I that I should be helping these folks because we all have these horrible <laughs> sensations of imposter syndrome and all these difficult you know, feelings of not being good enough, not being worthy of being in the clinic and trying to help these folks. You know, it's feeling like a failure at times. Just recognize, and this was so helpful for me, there are a lot of other people who feel the exact same way. They may not wear it on their sleeves, you may not know it, but if you have some discussions, and I'm sure you have if you've, if you've worked with other uh, clinicians, that sometimes, man, it's just hard in the clinic. It can be very challenging. And I wanted to go over a little bit of kind of my journey today and just kind of talk to some of the things that I felt were my low and high moments and hopefully leave you with some things that can help you kind of move forward in your journey and recognize some of the maybe similar struggles and maybe hopefully help you with some things that can move you forward and, and feel like you belong in the profession. Uh, so first things that happened to me was PT school. So PT school, I remember when I was in PT school, it was all about, I was either going to be a sports physical therapist or I was going to be an orthotherapist. And then as I was in school, it became apparent that I wanted to do manual therapy, man. I, I felt like, and we, I had some great instructors, I had a great instructor. Our primary manual therapy instructor was amazing. He was very eclectic. He didn't really pigeonhole you into like, this is the way I believe it works and you have to do it my way. He was very open. One of my pet peeves in PT education is folks that are very biased in their view of things. And we're all biased, but we should leave an open kind of door for, for students to kind of figure out what fits them best as a clinician. But in PT school, watching and hearing some of the stories, and at that time we were still teaching a very traditional mode of manual therapy, and it was the one I learned was through Kaltenborn uh, was the primary one, uh, but we also learned uh, MET, osteopathic techniques. We learned Mulligan. We learned McKenzie. We didn't get too much into Maitland. We talked maybe a little bit about it, but those were kind of the primary things. And I think the Norwegian or the Kaltenborn approach was the primary one. And that approach was like, you just had to develop like Jedi hands. At least this is my, my you know, perception of it and having gone through a little bit more training in my earlier years of the career where you just had to hone your hands. And the solution to figuring out all these challenging things we saw in clinic, you know, was all about being better with these, better with your hands, being better able to sense very specific dysfunctions that lied in facet glides or or maybe a shear test in the lumbar spine. And I'm not saying that sometimes doing a little bit of that can't give you some information, but I think research has more than enough proved that that's kind of a not the most reliable way of getting at it. And there's probably other things at play than the magical things we think we're feeling with our hands. But We'll leave that for another podcast discussion. But anyway, I left school thinking, man, that is the ticket. I was going to basically be able to figure out I had to ascend this ladder of manual therapy and, and figure out how I was going to be able to get this skill, this Jedi skill with my hands to be able to identify dysfunctions. I wanted to be able to look at people and be able to see like, oh, man, I can see just about their gait. They got this thing going on here and 
and I and I probably had some ridiculous, you know, biomechanical fairy tales I painted with patience in my mind, um, with good intentions. I'm not saying it was obviously we were. I'm looking to you know lead some folks astray, but at the time that was my mindset. That I was thinking that was going to be the the ticket. So then the clinic came to call. So I got I graduated. I was able to get into a job. Um, and excited. And then the clinic really showed me that, man, humans don't fit textbooks. I can make them try to, but man, the things I learned in all the PowerPoint slides, all the different textbooks, even the research articles, there were a lot of patients who simply didn't fit. They didn't have that nice black and white. If I do A, I get result B. It was anything but. If I get A, I get anything from B to Z that could happen with them. And then how do I know what's what? And I had zero clinical reasoning throughout my first probably five to eight years. It was just which new technique can I learn? And that's where I went on the great letter chase, I called it, where I was going to get certified and that was going to be the ticket. I just had to get to this Jedi pursuit. So for me, I went to St. Augustine's MTC program. And I don't have super negative things to say. I think hopefully it's it's moved on from where it was when I went through it back in, gosh, the early 2000s, I believe, or maybe no, late 2000, mid to late 2000s, doesn't matter. But it was very specific and there was a lot of things we were claiming to be able to do with tissues and things that, again, research has really called into question. Are we really able to do some of the things that we're claiming we can do? Probably not. Doesn't mean that some value isn't be had with, you know, being able to kind of do some a good manual therapy technique, some of the evaluative stuff, super ultra segmentally specific, I'd say we probably need to move on f- from, um, but, you know, learn some good things. But I also remember getting out of that certification feeling, like, okay, I, I'm, I'm, I've arrived, I'm here, I got it. And I re- had a boost of, you know, man, this is really helping work. And, and it still has helped. I'm not saying it hasn't. But then the reality struck that there are still people that this does not work with, that this finding the minute dysfunction and identifying it and fixing it with my hands or, or, or soft tissue or joint uh, mobilization, manipulative-based work. And it was kind of depressing. And I remember too, at that time, I was very bitter because I worked in a setting where we had a lot of spine patients. But if you were to see a spine patient in our system, especially if they were from our neurosurgical group, you had to be McKenzie certified. And that really ate at me because like, why do I have to be certified in something? That was... McKenzie was so far away from how I was trained. It was so, they didn't give a rip about what happens at the facet and super differentially diagnosing the facet versus a uh, uh, uncovertebral versus whatever type joints that I was taught in the past where you had to be super specific. It was strictly just get somebody repeatedly moving and loading their spine in specific directions and see if you see centralization, peripheralization or, or different clinical patterns form. So didn't like it. It was, and I actively disliked it for a period of time. I was kind of that my ego was too fragile to, to be challenged at that point. And, but it came apparent when I would have patients that weren't succeeding in my clinic who were dealing with spinal issues that I was just like, I, I can't help. And we had a process where after like six, eight visits, if you're, if you're still struggling, you could go through this consultative process with one of our McKenzie certified practitioners. And I didn't really care for it because I felt like, why can't I be the guy that's just, you know, why can't I be trusted? But really glad that process was there because what happened is I would see patients that weren't succeeding with my very segmentally specific, find the joint dysfunction, and they'd go see the folks who were doing McKenzie and sometimes dramatic improvements within one to two sessions. And that really first was probably a little bit of a bruise to my ego. I was like, man, I thought I had this thing figured out and this person's going to somebody else who's really approaching something that's so different from the way I look at it and they're succeeding. So 
<clears throat> took me a while to swallow my ego. And finally, uh, you know, my company at the time paid me to get certified in McKenzie. It was a great decision. It's still probably the primary way I interact with spine because I think symptom response is a lot more reliable than, you know, pontificating about what millimeters of glider off here or there or some supposed joint stability issue or things that research has long since proven we probably aren't going to be able to identify reliably. I know some of the Jedi manual people out there will probably say I'm, I'm you know, blasphemous with that thought process. Um, but it, it, even then too, with, with the MDT stuff, it was great. And it really was a huge addition. I, I felt like I was helping a lot more people with primary spine complaints. But then there were still people, and I, you know, as you get more experienced and you have younger clinicians coming into your workplaces, you tend to get into mentoring positions and different things. And oftentimes you get to be somebody who gets referred to with some of the tougher cases. And I remember just getting referred folks that were often the reason they probably weren't succeeding with uh, colleagues of mine who were maybe younger and, and in the more mentored or mentee role was because they weren't really somebody who you're going to figure this out through some specific tissue-related response that you were aiming at the periphery at. It was much more complex than that. Um, but at the time, I was just, you know, I just felt like, man, I've gone through all these certifications and I'm still having these people fail. I still have people that keep me up at night at 2 to 3 in the morning of what happened, why did they flare up, I suck, I'm horrible, I don't belong, all the imposter syndrome-related thought processes. And... Really, there was two points in my career where I was like, I'm just done. I, I can't do this. I, there was, I was in contact with Michigan State you know, to see, hey, I'm going to take this MCAT. I'm going to be a DO, and maybe that'll be the solution. I was going to get into the, the DO, osteopathic manipulative medicine approach. Thank goodness I did, didn't. Nothing against Michigan State, great thing, but I think our osteopathic theories have thoroughly been challenged, yet I think hide in a a cave of confirmation bias among the DO profession, but that's a whole nother discussion. And, but anyway, there, there was another time where I was just like, I, I just, I'm going to quit. I was looking into other careers. I was doing all sorts of things where I just can't do this. I'm not cut out for PT. I can't help these people because I was, you know, you get about 80% success rate just with natural history and different things. You know, 70, 80% of folks, those aren't the people we think about at night. It's the 20 to 10% that are struggling, that keep us up at night, that make us feel miserable, that make us feel like we're not doing well. So again, the existential crisis. And I've people I've talked to regularly have this existential crisis of, and sometimes more than, you know, frequently, more frequently than we'd probably like that these these feelings of inadequacy and I'm just going to quit kind of come come through. So then what happened is I got approached, we're talking with colleagues and things. They said, why don't you look at fellowship training? Because, you know, you, you've done the certification thing. You got your OCS at the time. I'd gone through the OCS thing. And that, that was helpful, too. I, I learned a lot of good things at my OCS. But uh, fellowship was going to be a thing. And I was like, I don't feel like being in the old boys club of manual therapy anymore. I kind of feel like I'd been drifting in and out of different circles. And it all felt like the same. There was some gray hole gray-haired sage that was going to be the guy y'all to kind of follow around eagerly trying to just soak up every bit of knowledge. And I'm not saying we shouldn't respect some of those folks who've been there, done that, but th this kind of paternalistic, follow the Jedi leader thought process, kiss the ring approach of, you know, manual therapy was just a turnoff to me at that point. I was just like, I, I, I kind of done with it. And then I got talk to you about, well, hey, there's a fellowship that's really kind of stripping that away. It's still very, you know, manual therapy technical focused, but it's more looking at research and not getting so caught up in guru chasing and guruism that was kind of the method of the day at the time. So I went into evidence and motions fellowship, and it was probably one of the best decisions I've ever made. It was a great experience. It's now the Bellin uh, Fellowship, and my buddy Mark Shepard's the director there. So I highly recommend you check it out if you get an opportunity. 
There were some good things and bad things. The the good things is I learned how to finally clinically reason. I was learned, you know, test, treat, retest and stuff where I had kind of dabbled in it, but it was a really, I mean, clinical reasoning gets beat into your skull and you get mentored with a lot of great clinicians who help you think in the clinic and be able to weed through when it isn't that black and white, where you're not getting these different like A plus B equals C results. How do you think and reason when there's multiple hypotheses at play? How do you kind of prioritize and treat when it's uns- when the uncertainty and complexity of clinic stares you in the face? So that was amazing. Um, the, the manual therapy components, again, I felt like I'd been there, done that. It wasn't anything spectacularly new. And, I, and again, I, I felt like, God, we're still rehashing the old manual therapy kind of technical aspects. And again, it's not bad to be good manual therapy. You need to have some skill with your hand to at least produce a good ritual and a good sensory input to the person in front of you. You need to explain it well, be confident with it, handle the patient well, have good hand skills of like touch and being able to make somebody feel comfortable and confident that you know what you're doing. Um, so, I mean, there's good things with with that, but it was, again, the manual therapy techniques kind of left me a little bit to be desired. And uh, nothing against that. I think it was just, I was at a point where I'd been through so many manual therapy techniques. I was like, I, I kind of am done with that. Um, one of the low points in another existential crisis I had in there was I was with one of my mentors who very well established uh, OMPT, a manual therapist in the U.S. and even, you know, probably internationally known. And um, learned some amazing things, but then I remember the folks that I wanted to, to stop f- being frustrated about, the folks that I wanted to stop thinking about at you know two o'clock in the morning, stressing about why I'm not helping this person, were still failing in his clinic. And I was like, man, what is up with this? The, I, I obviously this isn't the solution because this guy is supposed to be the pinnacle of what I'm supposed to be aspiring to be, and struggling with the very people I went into fellowship to help. So it was a very big struggle for me. In that, but then there were two classes that I took in fellowship beyond the clinical reasoning, because clinical reasoning was throughout, and it was great and highly, uh, you know, grateful for that. But the two classes were one, uh, why manual therapy works, and then it really made sense of okay, manual therapy's mechanisms of activity are probably more spinal cord and central nervous system. And uh, granted, yes, you need a tissue input, you need something peripherally to go on to make that input stimulate into the spinal cord and brain, but it's not a lot about what minute dysfunctional mechanical deformation and different things are happening peripherally. So that was huge for me because then it kind of unshackled me from this belief that I, there was some boogeyman I was going to chase in the tissue and identify and finally, you know, be the the solution to all this struggle I was having. It wasn't there and it, it was didn't need to be found. So um, it was helpful. Now, again, there's times where peripheral tissue issues are a problem. I know I've got people who are probably ready to start commenting of like, oh my God, you're saying that the tissues don't matter. No, I, I just think we often, when things get complex, especially, we chase all sorts of boogeymen and there's all sorts of folks who have chosen different things, whether it be craniosacral rhythm, PRI with you know breath and balloon blowing or whatever it may be, or OMM with all sorts of, you're crooked and that's the solution. You need to be realigned or the old fashioned subluxation way of getting after chiropractic. Um, but that that was uh, at least a class that was like, okay, now I feel like this this chase is not necessary. I mean, you can use manual therapy. It can be a stimulus, but it's not something that has to be present in every episode. And the other class I took was pain science. And that was one that obviously those of you who've been tuning in know pain science is a big part of how I operate and how we operate as far as the podcast, trying to help people better understand this because we still have a healthcare system that's so woefully underprepared and has minimal clue of what the complexity of pain truly is. Um, so that was where, okay, this is why those folks who are keeping me up at two o'clock in the morning are struggling because I'm trying to freaking focus strictly in their tissues when it's a whole human ecosystem issue. And so that opened up my studies 
um, which later became, you know, I think a few years after I graduated fellowship, I read Lewis Gifford's books, which was another aha moment because I remember him in his books talking about working with the Jeff Maitland, who obviously, you know, absolute legend in our profession and should be, he's done some great things and I'm not by any means knocking Jeff Maitland and the amazing contributions he's had. But I remember Lewis Gifford talking in this thing about how, when he did his uh, mentored work with Maitland in Maitland's clinic, how he'd come home just absolutely depressed and, and distraught that not a lot of people were getting better with that approach. Cause obviously Maitland was working with the Uber complex, you know, getting probably people referred from all over Australia and they're on, um, again, I, the reason probably these folks are getting referred is because you're, you're trying to f- fit a very peripherally driven tissue centered approach for a very complex issue. Um, so yeah, I, it was, it was an eye opener. Oh God, that dude's walked on the same path for me. So I'm not crazy. Lewis Gifford had the same issue. Um, so that basically, you know, after having those classes, reading Gifford's books and this stopping this chase of trying to be this Jedi of technical prowess. I've honestly, looking back, I think, you know, I'm definitely grateful for the McKenzie stuff because that helped me really hone in on, um, you know, some repeated motions things because I didn't feel like I got that in school. Some of you may have gotten it well enough in school that you probably feel comfortable to start applying it in clinic. Um, obviously, the certification or arguments, I'm not a huge fan of. If you happen to be letters to be deemed a, a worthy therapist, I think you can learn that stuff with good mentoring and good feedback from others. But anyway, uh, overall, you know, I think after school and having maybe a few technical things, learn some classes, learn some better skills, do some different things, you're you're well enough. But if you can zoom out and realize that, man, the complexity isn't lying in the tissues. It's lying in the unique person in front of you. It's lying in your ability to communicate with them, to, to put a stage out there where you are a shared expert. You're not the expert. You're one expert in the room. The other expert in the room is the patient. They're the only ones who know their pain their experience, the journey they've walked leading into your clinic. And I think just being like Alfred to the Batman, instead of, you know, feeling like I had to be the superhero swooping in to save the day, letting the patient be the hero and being that Alfred to say, hey, let's talk about what you've gone through and validate all that horrible stuff that often people have gone through. Let's listen to it. And then based on all this good pain science stuff, let's start putting the pieces together for you patients so you can kind of see how this journey and your lack of success with traditional biomedical approaches oftentimes, how that often has resulted into you struggling the way you are. And it's been the most rewarding work for me. It's got my career rejuvenated where I can, you know, take folks who've been through this stuff, knowing pain science, not to where I can robotically recite, you know, flashcards to people, but where I can, I know it well enough to where I can take what people tell me in their story and weave a story of how, and some analogies and metaphors into a story that help them understand of how all this stress and distress can dysregulate body systems and immune systems and all these different things. Um, so that's been huge for me. And do I still fail? Absolutely. There's no doubt. And I still have patients. Uh, recently had a patient who I challenged a little bit that I thought very, in a validating, very gentle way about this, you know, alignment narrative and her fear of even walking up a step because she was afraid her pelvis would twist out of alignment. Um, and she didn't show up for a second visit. Now <clears throat> she's scheduled for more. She hasn't canceled any of her future ones for, so for all I know, she, you know, had a flat tire or something, but she also may have just, I may have challenged that narrative too much. But so again, it's not that I don't still fail. I'm okay where I've done my best at this point. I, I don't feel like I've got this massive pressure of the outcome. And Jason Silvernail is a good mentor of mine who's really helped me realize that this pressure of the outcome on your shoulders All I can control is doing my best every day in the clinic to validate, to give somebody's story a stage, to validate it, 
and to give some people some options of things, of ways I know I can help them to piece together some of their story of how the, why their body's behaving in this dysregulated, highly sensitive, very painful fashion, and then offer them some suggestions of ways that I, I can help them as a coach and a guide by the side, not the hero who's going to swoop in and save the day. I still may do some manual therapy things, or I still may do some hands-on things, as long as the narrative around it isn't, I'm saving you, It's this is the only thing that's curing you. It's if it's something that helps somebody move towards valued goals and they're not, it's not a distraction, it's something that helps add to the thing, then I'm fine doing it. But I, I just hope those of you who are rolling through some of the struggles that your career will give you, and I mean, I, I'm not going to probably say I may not have another existential crisis for all I know, but I do know that I am much more prepared and much more confident that I'm doing the best I can do, that it isn't that I'm not enough, it's that we work in a world where there is a massive amount of complexity. And some of that complexity is driven by things that we can't control of what happens outside of a clinical door. We can't control some of the horrible environments people live in, some of the difficult uh, socioeconomic situations they deal with. I mean, we obviously should you know, try to work and help and do charitable things and give back to our communities and do all the things we can help those things or help to help those out. But there are things we can't necessarily control. We do our best, and that's the only thing you can do at the end of your workday is say, hey, did I give my patients my best attention, purpose, purposeful curiosity to understand their story, purposeful trying to integrate yourself in that story, not as the expert, but as the guide by the side who was trying to steer them towards valid goals. And if I can walk out each day saying that, then it's a day well spent, in my opinion. I love working with people who have the most difficult cases and complex things. I used to be one of those people, and we were talking with a colleague of how we used to, back in the day, just in different settings, we'd all commiserate in the tr in the office with the other therapist. Did you see that person? How blah, blah, blah. And we'd all start going off about how the patient was this and the patient was that. When it was an us issue, it was an us issue where we weren't understanding what was happening there. You know, when we don't understand it, it has to be their fault. It can't be us. Because that being, it being us makes us feel that imposter syndrome even more. So... Hopefully this was of value to you. If it was, I'd love to hear your comments of your journey. What are the kind of existential crises you've been on? What are some of the aha moments or the things that pushed you forward? These are things that we all go through. And anything that uh, you've benefited from, maybe something you let us know about that could benefit somebody else who's listening to the podcast. So I really greatly appreciate those of you who listen to the podcast. I don't take for granted the time you're spending to, to listen to the podcast there's a limited time in the day, and I'm eternally grateful for those of you who spend some of your time with me to discuss some of these topics. Hopefully, you're bringing value, or hopefully, we're bringing value, I should say. And by all means, don't hesitate to reach out. Let us know how things are going. If there's anything else we can talk about or help you in your practice, let me know, and we will definitely start talking about it more. But until next time, we'll talk to you next week. This has been another episode of the Modern Pain Podcast with Dr. Mark Karchula. Join us next time as we continue our journey to help change the story around pain. For more information on the show, visit modernpaincare.com. Also, visit the Pain Masterminds Network on Facebook for free education and resources. This podcast is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for medical advice or treatment. Please consult a licensed professional for your specific medical needs. Changing the story around pain. This is the Modern Pain Podcast.